0: 1600 and that's and um, the computer is not responsible
1: Okay, good evening. Can you all hear me okay? Yeah. yeah. We have a microphone here. It's up to our speakers if they want to use it or not. I'm going to take the liberty to you know, take the mask off just while we speak. If that's okay with you all, if you have any objection, I'll put it back on. Um, So, the computer is not working. Uh, ITS is on the way. But until they do that, we might get started. Uh, I have a little PowerPoint that I want to share with you. If I get to it, fine. If I don't, here it goes. So, we're talking about a humanitarian crisis like no other in recent history in Lebanon. Uh, my colleague, uh, economist, Elie Metteza, Dr. Metteza, uh established that it is one of the most severe, the three most severe economic crises in the world in the last 150 years. So, that's a mouthful. Um, there is more to say about that, a lot to unpack. The idea behind the background on the on Lebanese history is to give you an idea about the geography, the country's history in a nutshell, uh, as a way to flesh out the importance of Lebanon. Lebanon is, a, is, a, is unique. It is one of two major centers of culture and learning in the Middle East, the second one being in Egypt. Of course, if you're from Egypt, you would say Lebanon is the other one. Uh, but those two in tangent were the two centers that basically launched Arab history, Arab culture in a modern sense. Uh, Lebanon was always part of a geographical area. We collectively refer to it as natural Syria, in Arabic, or geographic Syria, if you like. If you think of it as you know a collection of cities and missing see my map? here, we're going to try once more. Hey! Okay. Allow me to just cancel ITS, please. I don't want to waste the time. Sorry about this. assure you although I'm glad to see otherwise now what the computer was not responsive. Here's something to point to, until they get us going on the PowerPoint. Uh, This is a map of the Levant, or the Eastern Mediterranean region. You recognize many of those countries, many of you at least. Just to give you a point of reference, so you're in proximity to Italy. the the boot, the boot, right? So you all know uh, where it is. Greece to the east, that's Europe. Uh, Asia begins at Istanbul eastward, that's all Asia, the largest continent. That includes the Levant to this West Canal over here. And this is Africa in the south. So Lebanon has a very unique, uh, is in a very unique and physical location in world history, culturally, but also logistically. So if you take, uh, if you connect the Mediterranean to the Arabian Gulf or Persian Gulf, if you will, you will be, um, you'll have a clear shot all the way to very rich colonies. In the East, like India, all the way you have a clear shot to China or around the world, world uh, if you want. Uh, so that's the importance of the Middle East as a whole. It is the key to the East for Europeans who are exponentially more advanced. As of you know, the eighteenth beginnings of the eighteenth century, the you know the Industrial Revolution, followed by the American Industrial Revolution. Uh, while the region here was under the occupation or under the yoke of uh, Turkish rule. So the Ottoman Empire is the last of the great Islamic empires and it ruled over this region from the Taurus Mountains the Arabic inhabited regions. This is geographic Syria, which I refer to uh, Iraq, the borders of Iran That was the easternmost border of the Ottoman Empire down to the Hejaz or Western Saudi Arabia uh, North Africa at some point all the way to Tunisia and Libya for a, for a short time so, under Ottoman rule, there was like a general decay. Um, again, I really missed my PowerPoint, but... Uh, uh, so, Lebanon then became a pathway connecting east and west. So, when the American liberals began to set up shop, they wanted to proselytize people, turn them into Christians, Uh, mostly Protestant American uh, missionaries. They brought with them printing presses in the time. And um, off you go. So there was a very vibrant movement of reprinting Arabic classics in all parts of natural or geographic Syria, but especially around the Beirut area. And the, (coughs) the American Protestant College, established in the 1860s, became the American University of Beirut in 1920. And that is the Harvard of the, of the Middle East. Uh, uh, nothing comes close to that except uh, universities maybe in, uh, in Cairo, in, in Egypt, uh, where the oldest one around in Al-Azhar. Uh, so through the translations of the Arabic classics, the population of the region began to rediscover their Arab roots. And there was a cultural and political reawakening. We call it an nahda Al-Nahda is an Arabic word that, say, you know, describes someone getting up from a lying down position to, as, to, as if they are getting up culturally, politically, in every style. Lebanon was the center of that. That was uh, corresponded with migration from the region to the, to the Americas and all over the world. Um, and with a little luck, I'll show you uh, where Lebanese ended up, they found out worldwide. There are far more Lebanese in Chile alone than there are Lebanese and in, uh, in Brazil, rather, than there are Lebanese people living in Lebanon itself. There's uh, something to the order of 12 million Lebanese living in the diaspora in South America alone, versus roughly 7 million in Lebanon. Uh, and the country became host to uh, a whole lot of refugees. First, Palestinians who were displaced in 48 and 67, and most recently after the, the civil war in Syria. Uh, at least uh, the official uh, records say that there are 1.6 million uh, refugees in the country. The number is more like over 2 million for sure. So this is like tantamount 10, 10 to the United States receiving, I don't know, like 20% of our population. You do the map, we have 340 million people uh, 20% of that. So 2040, 70 million or so, roughly, uh, as if we received 70 million people in the country. So, and Lebanese people are good hosts, um, and we can generalize about all kinds of people, how hospitable they are. Lebanon is unique in that respect. And Lebanon has had to endure a lot because of its location, and because of colonialism or European ambitions. The Europeans were very busy building those colonies in the Far East. They were making all kinds of money. You know the story, or maybe uh, you have an idea. Uh, Opium, tea, salt, you name it, in the Far East. The Ottoman Empire, despite this decay and many problems, spared the region the onslaught of European colonialism. But it was decaying, it was faltering, and falling apart. So Europeans found an entryway through what is called um, capitulations, which means economic treaties that were skewed in favor of the Europeans. Among those treaties is one with France that kind of drew an arbitrary map around the city of Beirut, right here, on the shore. And they called it, this would be Lebanon. And their pretext for that was that they will protect the Christian minorities in a sea of Muslims. What they spare you knowledge of is that those Christians lived in peace with their Muslim uh, neighbors for centuries. Uh, I I don't volunteer too much information about myself, but I might as well start doing that because it, it is urgent to do so. I'm Happened to be an Orthodox Christian who was born and raised in Jordan. My aunt and her husband were displaced from Nazareth, our ancestral home, to Lebanon, where they lived in peace in this sea of Muslims. So if you go to Lebanon, I want to stress this look at a Lebanese person, and you look at, uh, and you could not, two Lebanese people, you could not tell who is Muslim, who is a Christian, you couldn't tell who's a Shia, who's a, who's a, um, a Sunni. That's what I'm talking about. Yeah. I'm going to get to my. Uh, I So
0: help me,
1: but now we did. <laughs> I really huh? uh, uh, mm-hmm. So um, kind of lost my share of thought. Give me a few words. We're saying we that it's, it's
0: not hard to differentiate difference. to, to differentiate between most of so that should
1: be clear from the outset because we have all kinds of wrong impressions about Islam. Islam's capacity for absorption is immense. I don't want to say that I don't like exclusivity of any kind but I grew up there, I should know. So that should be clear. The other thing that should be clear is that Lebanon when, when we see that it became an experiment in modernity, if you go to Beirut and you look around you would think you're in New York or Paris uh, and that shock actually confronted a lot of you from the region Notice, but many of your colleagues you'd be surprised. we do not have uh, this impression about the Middle East in general. Is, it? Oh, sorry. is
0: the uh jump open? Is that
1: the junk
0: I'm not
1: sure. Is that it? Yes,
0: I'm sorry. Oh, uh, yeah. I got
1: you. you sure did? I really appreciate it. Yeah,
0: no, is that do you mean I
1: think we're good. Okay. Awesome. I'm glad to be here Thank you, dear. Appreciate mm-hmm. it. bye I mean, dear colleagues, that uh, is. <laughs> <laughs> so, skipping around, let me impress you a little bit with my PowerPoint. I doubt that you, savvy, you know, media savvy people. Look in the background and you will see a map of the region uh, all the way to, you know, uh, Italy. Here, here it is in the silhouette. You can see it, barely, right? And I added this red dot, which delineates the location of government, which is about the size of the country. That tells you how small it is, and keep that in perspective as I share with you how important the place is. And here's the world map, and you can see the Red Sea over here, equivalent down here. So, Lebanon would be a very small dot in, in the world right there on the eastern coast of the Mediterranean. So, <clears throat> Lebanon then, Christians, Muslims of all sects, and atheists and non Arabs in the country part, partook in this awakening, cultural awakening. That's why any distinction we make between the religions or sects is superficial, and it was imposed by colonialism namely the French, who had ambitions in the region in order to secure pathways to their rich colonies in the East. Because of that, they, they introduced something called confessionalism. This is what I wanted to share with you earlier. Um, 58 5.8 million people in Brazil, and this is a few years old, by the way, uh, alone. Um, million people in in Latin America, the number is a little bit higher than that. You see how, wherever you go in the world, you have to encounter a Lebanese person. Uh, uh, As a matter of fact, for a very long time, the richest fellow in the world was a Lebanese, uh, someone from Lebanese ancestry living in Mexico. Uh, Slim is his last name, So colonialism came it had its own designs. Lebanon was created by the French under the pretext of protecting you know, Christians who never needed protection. Was there violence in the mid-19th century? Yes, that's because a lot of information is coming out about that. It was a peasant rebellion against their overlords, and the British armed the Druze, and the French armed the Maronites. The Druze is a, uh, a sect of Islam. Um, and the Maronites is an offshoot of Catholicism, and that gives the impression that those were terminal, lasting, religious conflicts. Nothing could be further from the truth if you put it in perspective. This is a peasant rebellion for economic reasons that took on, uh, you know, a sectarian or religious uh, face. So, put it in layman's words, I mean, if you give any of us, you know, my colleague right there, give her all the resources and the power over us in this room. She can get us on each other's throats like that, I imagine, if she wants to. If that sounds believable, then you have an idea about how it is, in fact, a relationship of power. Back to the uh, innovations in Lebanon, those are dear and near to my heart because I'm up to my eyeballs in translations and Arab literature. I have a collection of the very first Bible, modern Bible, printed in Arabic. It was printed in Beirut by American uh, presses. As a matter of fact, the Americans sanctioned translations of the Bible into Arabic. And the translator was who's a learned uh, person. In the company of others like Ibrahim Eliyazji and Muhammad Jamil Beyhom. it didn't matter who was Christian, who was a Muslim, who was a Maronite, who was Orthodox, etc., etc. This is the heart of Arab reawakening, and all of that happened in Beirut. At the same time, many people were displaced because of decay, and they came to the United States. But the French left what is called confessional politics, a confessional system which dictates that the president of the country is always a Christian. Uh, um, The prime minister is a Sunni Muslim, and the Speaker of the House is a Shiri. Uh, And that's static, and time and again, in the National pact in 1943, and again, in the Thaith Accord in 1989, they maintained the confessional system because it was very hard to wrest the country from the clutches of foreign influence. This is part of the problem. I know there is a lot to unpack there. I know there are very strong opinions about what happens in Lebanon. Our focus is a humanitarian crisis. Um, but the roots of this crisis, is that Lebanon was in the crosshairs of so many people for so many different reasons, uh, especially the French. In fact, the French and the British carved the area between them as if they're sharing a pie. Exactly. They just drew arbitrary lines. So Lebanon and Syria and northern Iraq became like French uh, territory, or Syrian influence, as they call them. And then Palestine, Jordan, and southern Iraq um, were run by the British. Uh, but the, all this was done in secret in what is called the Sykes-Picot Accord. You don't have to remember too much of this but this gives you an idea about how they went about it. We have to deal with some facts to kind of drive the point so that it's not just an opinion, yeah? And then the League of Nations tying the loose ends of World War I codified those uh, borders and that more or less Sykes-Picot is more or less the political borders of the region as they are today, with one small exception. So French and the British made a deal whereby the French will get $20 million and some royalties for the oil in Mosul. So Mosul became part of the British uh, controlled territory, and that is Maldives Iraq. Is, is that arbitrary? Is that unfair? And a line was drawn between separating, for example, the anti-mountain Lebanon and the Shuk Mountains from northern Palestine, uh, which before that time, were, they were continuous, as was the rest of natural geographic Syria, an Arab region, or as it's called uh, uh, in Arabic. So very often when I speak to elderly, and I do log a lot of interviews, they ask me where I'm from. I said, well, my folks uh, were born in Nazareth, in northern Palestine. And they will tell me a story about how they traded with Safat and Nablus in, in historic Palestine, which uh, since became the state of Israel in 1948. And some families, when the League of Nations severed, the, severed them, many families are split between the two. So you have a lot of same last names from Haifa and Beirut from Nablus to vintage beer, and those were the same families until, you know, uh, the British and the French decided, yeah, we'll draw a line here. And also there was another proviso in 1917 uh, to promise to settle Jewish people in historic Palestine. Uh, uh, The wording was uh, that uh, His Majesty's government, the British, this is a promise by uh, Belfour, the Foreign Secretary, to Baron Rothschild, a very wealthy uh, individual uh, in Vienna, I think uh, uh, that His uh, uh, Majesty's government looks with favour to establish to the establishment of a national home for the Jews in Palestine. That became the nucleus, the seed uh, around which Israel was founded, uh, uh, displacing Palestinians, etc. Maybe we'll talk about this uh, if, when and if SJP uh, decides to do so. Having mentioned that, anyone here from from LSA, by the way? Yay! Good to see you guys. What about ASU? I'm still junior. Okay, no worries. And SJP. Yeah, cool. Appreciate you guys. So you have uh, you're wearing two hats. That's nice. Yeah. So um, if and when you decide to explore that topic, we should, we ought to. Okay. Because telling the the facts as they are has become a very uh, dangerous affair uh, and we can expand on that later on uh, depending on your initiative. So we talked about the national impact uh, all those things kind of festered until 1975 Lebanon erupted in the civil war again weapons poured in the country uh, and that war is very complex uh, I'll leave that alone for now but that was the impetus for an yet another wave of immigrants, the largest of which were southern Lebanese who settled in the Dearborn area. And everything you see in Dearborn, if you take this experience out of Dearborn, Dearborn will look different. I'll leave it at that. So uh, this became the heart of Arab American life because we are in the middle of the largest concentration of Arabic-speaking people outside the Middle East, largely because of the Lebanese Civil War uh, and what they've done with that is uh, is something to behold, of course. I wanted to show you those pictures of, of Beirut. I have fond memories there. My aunt lived and raised three kids in Beirut uh, after 1948, before I was born. Uh, but the place was uh, the most beautiful I've seen. I mean, my best memories were split between Nazareth and Beirut, where I had the only family, in fact. We had no one, Jordan. I, my parents were refugees there. And the place was, as I mentioned, very modern, ultra-modern. Uh, but the cultural experience was among the most complete in the Middle East. Uh, can, only Egypt can approach that. Having said that, the connections between Beirut and Nablus and Jerusalem and, and, and uh, other cities in natural Syria and Damascus, for that matter, Aleppo, uh, were very powerful and profound. You could not separate the cultural experience Effect. If we thought about one thing, it's probably the, the recipe for taboulier almost. So the Lebanese dump a lot of crushed uh, uh, wheat, the Lebanese, uh, the Palestinians do the Lebanese just a little bit, for example. I honestly labor to think of examples of profound fundamental differences between the two people, or the peoples in the region. Uh, also, that was, the dream was that to establish a um, multicultural state where Druze, Armenians, Kurds, uh, people of all faith, including people with no faith or non monotheistic, can live in harmony together. So they had a very clear idea about what they wanted to do. Only uh, colonialism uh, prevented all of that. Right now, just to give you an idea, you'll hear more about this uh, from Dr. Mithaza. $1 equals 1,511 Lebanese liras. If you lived on, I don't know, just to make ends meet, if you needed $2,000 to live in Beirut, this is a metro, cosmopolitan city, uh, not unlike New York, by the way. You'll need, by my math, 2.8 million liras to survive. Add to this inflation and rising prices and disappearance of jobs, On top of all of this, there was a huge explosion in the harbor that decimated parts of the city. How many of you heard of the Oklahoma City bombing, by the way, in 95? Yeah. So it took uh, like an extremist, an American extremist, the terrorist with links to Michigan, as a matter of fact. He just put like three or four barrels of ammonium nitrate and blew up the building, the federal building in Oklahoma City, killed 166 people destroyed 270 structures, damaged 270 structures. Imagine 22,700 tons of the same stuff blowing up on you. Why and how this could happen is an open question. Our panel may be able to address that. Uh, again, a lot to unpack. We are political beings, yet we need to look at the humanitarian crisis because It is unlike anything that the region has experienced. Uh, I mean, many of you who are in tune to the Middle East hear about bombing raids against Lebanon. 2006 was a really nasty one, and then a couple of years later in Gaza. Most recently, Gaza was bombed, if you recall. If you keep up with the the happenings there, uh, those bombings would claim the lives of 2,500 people, most of them women and children, and people spring back on their feet, They repair the damage as much as they can. And they move on. But this is different. This is sustained. And there are fears of famines now, which is insulting to Lebanese people. This is uh, uh, a modern society that actually, with a very high education per capita, among the highest in the world, uh, to have this kind of uh, crisis should not go without notice on campus. And that's why we're here. So with this, sorry I took a couple minutes more than I should have. Let me introduce our uh, speakers, please. Dr. Eliel Miteza is an economist here at the U of One Many of you know him. So in somewhat unusual path, uh, Dr. Miteza joined academia after a career in central banking as head of the Monetary Policy Division and Deputy Director of the Currency and Treasury Treasury Department at the Bank of Albania. He teaches and conducts research in economics with a focus on global macroeconomics and monetary economics. More recently, uh, Dr. Viteza has also served in academic leadership roles as Associate Provost and Associate Dean at the University of Michigan. So he was my my boss, basically. So his uh, comments will address steep and painful economic coast, the financial crisis in Lebanon, uh, which has ranked among the world banks uh, in the top ten and possibly top three most vague crisis globally in the last 150 years, uh, and there is more uh, of that to come. Uh, please help me welcome Dr. Um,
2: This evening. Good. Thanks for coming. Uh, well, I found, I don't know about you, but being someone who's not very familiar with the history and this background that Professor Bawarty just shared with us, I found his exposition extremely useful, extremely help, helpful for me. So, how about a round of applause for him? <laughs> Uh, so, let me uh, actually. As I was listening to uh, Dr. Bovardi, something came to mind through a really brief memory from uh, I think 30 years ago. So back then, uh, I'm in one of my first jobs or positions at the Central Bank of Albania, uh, very fresh out of school, and. Uh, So we're talking 1991, 1992, uh, the communist regime in Albania uh, had just fallen and so the entire uh, government was reorganizing and one of those institutions that was drastically and dramatically reorganizing was the central bank. So I got one of my first assignments was to work on balance of payment statistics. tracking things like exports and imports and capital flows and remittances and so on. And as we were trying to make sense of these, um, we identified a big hole. In other words, the accounts were not balancing. And the only explanation I could find was that what was responsible for this big hole that wasn't balancing were remittances from Albanians who had recently gone overseas, immigrated overseas, and were sending money back home. And this amount was 10% of GDP. Now, 10% of the Albanian GDP, right, that is to to give you a sense about how large that is, right? That's an incredible gap, right? And so I had a hard time coming to terms with this. It was so large, right? And so, in one of my conversations with uh, with a colleague from the IMF, the International Monetary Fund, uh, I confessed that I wasn't very comfortable with this. That this plug, so to speak, seemed quite large. And he said, "It is large. I can give you examples in other countries where that is even larger." And I remember that he mentioned Lebanon. I may be off on the amount, but I think he said something to the tune of 20% of GDP, which is remarkable. It left me with one impression that I still remember to this day, even though this conversation happened 30 years ago, that um, to send such massive amounts of money back home, it just it, just, it shows generosity it shows a level of deep care and it shows a connection, a deep connection with your family and with your country. And Bowardi described the Lebanese people as very generous and hospitable. And I think that's that was also my impression at the time from this very brief conversation. Now, um, I have not necessarily studied in depth the economy of Lebanon. I'm not an expert uh, in the economy of Lebanon. Uh, I do focus most of my work here, as well as when I was working at the central bank, on things such as monetary policy, exchange rates. Uh, I have looked at a lot of financial crisis, currency crisis, and debt crisis what's happened in Lebanon seems to be at the intersection of all of those things that I've studied for uh, that I've worked on for about 30 years. So I'm going to make an effort to illuminate, uh, perhaps just shed some light on what's happened in Lebanon as someone who is somewhat distant from the reality on the ground. Uh, Professor Bouard really explained well as a humanitarian crisis. And so I'm going to do my best to remind myself that speaking only in terms of economic models. And formulas and accounts. May not be a good idea, because this also involves real people, real pain and suffering and severe severe loss of income and wealth, and hard-earned money. Um, And so if I go over the line sometimes, please forgive me, that's probably because I do not know enough about Lebanon, nor do I have the intimate knowledge that many of you have about the country and its travails, especially in the last couple of years. with that, um, I'm going to talk about, I'm going to try and focus my remarks on uh, four things. Um, so I'm going to first talk about some observations that stood out for me uh, when I looked at some data and information about the economy uh, in Lebanon. So that's one. Number two is I'm going to uh, focus a little bit about the about uh, on the role of the central bank in this crisis. And that's for two reasons. Um, One is, of course, because I'm more familiar with um, the role of central banks in economic management, macroeconomic management. But two is because the central bank seems to have had an outsized role in this crisis, probably right next to the government right, in terms of management or mismanagement of what happened. Um, and so I'm going to try my best to separate what I think is falls more in the category of data and information and what I think constitutes more opinion on my side, Right on my, which is, of course, debatable and only one perspective. And then third, um, I'm going to try to uh, summarize if I have time. Basically, some lessons from this crisis, and then finally, hopefully, we have time. I'll talk about some possible avenues for um, an economic, for I should say, the eventual economic recovery. Um, and so, a lot of hopefully. we'll we'll manage to avoid a lot of doom and gloom, but I'm warning you, it is a lot of doom and gloom, such as the nature of what's happened. Um, Well, what what is my hope? My hope is that you will gain a perspective, one perspective primarily based on economic theory, monetary theory, uh, microeconomics, That is one perspective in addition to the very complex um, perspectives from history, uh, sociology, politics, uh, that probably Dr. Ajami will uh, will address. um, With the hope that when we leave this room, um, we'll be able to at least be in a better position to put together a mosaic that is a little more complex than what we came in this room with. So, And then hopefully, if we have time, in the Q&A we can compare notes. I look forward to learning from you as well. Um, So let me start with some... First of all, how many of you have ties to Lebanon, actual current ties, uh, family, friends, and so on, connecting with them frequently. Okay, so it's a good, a good part of the audience um, falls in that category. Um, it means, of course, you're invested in what's happening there, and you're invested in basically a uh, a good recovery, a fair recovery from from this crisis. All right, so some uh, I'll start with some observations first uh, about Lebanon. This is not obviously going to be a complete scan of the economic landscape of, of Lebanon. Only the things that stood out to me that could have been probably more responsible than other things for where we are today. Um, so first, Lebanon has a fixed exchange rate. And uh, as uh, Dr. Bovardi explained, that's about Fifteen hundred liras per dollar, right? Um, I should say it had a fixed exchange rate, right? Because the way things are going right now, I believe on the black market or whatever that market is called, the rate is twenty thousand. At least last, uh, my last information is right around twenty thousand liras per U.S. dollar. So yes, please, twenty-five. Actually. Twenty-five thousand. Okay, so things are changing. changing pretty fast. Thank you for that. Um, And so that's, that's important. It's a key element in this economic and financial crisis. By the way, I want to say that uh, what's not unique, there are a lot of unique things that have occurred in this crisis, okay? But what's not unique is that in many countries that have experienced uh, currency crisis, like Lebanon is experiencing currency crisis. These crises tend to come together to the party, meaning they come together with a banking crisis, and they come together sometimes with a debt crisis, and in the case uh, and in the case of Lebanon, of course, an economic crisis. And in the case of Lebanon, they're having all four: right, a currency crisis, a debt crisis, um, a banking crisis, okay, and of course, an economic crisis. Um, so that's not unusual. The next thing that drew my attention was Lebanon has an incredible, has had an incredible large current account deficit. Some people like to refer to the current account deficit as a trade deficit. They're similar, but they're not the same. So I I can't remember the last time where I looked at a country that where, whose imports exceed exports by four or five times, and so exports in Lebanon I think are right around five billion dollars for work, and imports about 20 billion dollars. So there is a huge gap between exports and imports, and exports only cover one-fifth or one-fourth of the import bill. And so I'd like you to, I'd like you to think about what, how are they covering the rest? Where are they finding the money to pay the bills for all those massive imports? Okay? And the answer in economic theory, and then I'll talk more about this later, is you have to have some capital inflows. Either your expats are sending money in, Are they? Check. They are, right? They are sending a lot of money in. That's one source of uh, foreign currency. Two, you have foreign direct investment. You have, in other words, foreign investors or expats investing in Lebanon, right? That's another uh, source of funds. Three, you have borrowing. You can borrow from the rest of the world. United States does that all the time, all the time. But for the United States, that gap is only that gap is only 3 to 5% of GDP. In Lebanon, that gap is 25% of GDP. That's enormous, right? So why did this stand out to me? It stood out to me because that gap is a huge source of risk. In what sense? For the bank, for the fixed exchange rate. Why? Because even if a small portion of that gap, of that funding gap, stops If foreign investors, foreign banks, decide to not lend you money anymore, then the peg or the fixed exchange rate becomes unsustainable, which is what happened. In international finance, this is called a sudden stop. Next observation is that the current account deficit is not the only kind of borrowing, meaning external borrowing that the Lebanese economy was doing. But there was also an internal kind of borrowing, in other words, the public debt, public deficit, government deficit, right, were large, and often growing. And the public debt is or was around 150% of GDP. That's a very large number. Now, we used to large numbers like that now, post pandemic, I think. But of course, um, two, three years ago, uh, uh, that was quite alarming, I would say. A really large debt. Um, Why is that important? It's important because while the United States can borrow at really low interest rates, how low? Often The United States can borrow for 30 years, right, and pay back in 30 years at under 2% interest rate. Well, Lebanon cannot do that. For Lebanon, interest rates are much, much higher. And being able to pay 5%, 6%, 10% interest rate, when your economy is not growing, is asking for miracles. So that's another problem. Now moving on to the to the central bank and the financial uh, sector or the banking sector, I was stunned to see that about 80% of the public debt was held by the banks. Wow. So in other words, the banking system has been the largest, one of the largest funders of the government spending, of the, of the government debt, of public debt. Okay. Who else? Who else was a large funder? The central bank. The central bank also is holding uh, large amounts of public debt. So it's these two sectors who are funding uh, large. And unsustainable government spending. What I also learned, that I thought was remarkable, I didn't know this before, and I, maybe I should have, was that the commercial banking system's assets are 450 percent of Lebanon's GDP. Now that is stunning. Why, you might ask? Because that, because that means that the banking system in Lebanon is really way too large for the economy it serves. Does this ring true among those of you who are familiar with the Lebanese banking system? Yes. And you might say, well, that's what's wrong with that? Well, nothing until, some, until something goes wrong and then the banking system is so large that it can take down the entire economy with it, as it is currently happening. Remember all the debt that the banks are holding? The public debt, right? That the banks are holding? What are the odds that the government will make good on that debt? What are the odds that the government will repay the banks to the last penny? Seems to me very low, very, very low. They're going to have haircuts. They're going to do debt restructuring. And when they do so, the banks will face or will incur massive losses, as will the central bank. <coughs> um, another thing that <coughs> that is uh, is alarming is that interest payments on the public debt are very expensive. I mentioned before, they're about 10% of GDP. of GDP. Now imagine, for instance, that um, you have a paycheck and you earn, let's say that you earn $50,000 a year, okay? What the the equivalent of that in your case would be that you will spend on interest for borrowing, that you will spend on interest $5,000 a year. That is a lot of interest. That is a very costly borrowing habit. Okay? And so the only way in which, with a paycheck of $50,000, you can afford $5,000 a year in, in interest. The only way is if your income, if your paycheck is growing by 10% every year. Well, the Lebanese economy is not growing, has not been growing by 10% every year. In fact, far from it. Am I going too slow? you go? Okay, <laughs> just a time check. And please, when I'm down to the last five minutes, <coughs> make you a sign. give you some. <laughs> We're there already. Okay. <laughs> All right. So, uh, cutting this short here, and I'm going to say that um, one of the consequences of this crisis, of course, is that it's an economic crisis, and I was amazed to see the depth and the (coughs) impact of the crisis, really, as Dr. Gawain called it, a humanitarian crisis. I think more than half of the population is now considered to be under poverty level. And so um, that's just, it's worth pausing there and thinking about that for a minute. How can half of the population in a country that was Relatively recently, doing quite well. Now, fall have fallen under the poverty level. That is remarkable, a remarkable catastrophe, uh, we should say. And uh, from what I saw, uh, GDP per capita, real GDP per capita has fallen by about 40 percent. I think, which is the um, definition of a of an economic calamity. All right. So I'll talk briefly about uh, I'll talk briefly about the the tax. exchange rates, fixed exchange rates, uh, what they are, really briefly, um, what their purpose is, and why they matter for this particular crisis. Okay, um, and uh, so I'll start with, uh, of course, with what it is, right? And the simplest way to put it is to say that a fixed exchange rate is really fixing the price of one currency in terms of another currency. In this case, the Lebanese central bank has decided to fix the price of the US dollar at 1,500 or around 1,500 euros. And to keep it there. Now the question, the next question is, well, how do you keep it there? Do you just declare that that's the exchange rate and then you do nothing about it? Oh, no. No, you have to do something about it. In fact, you have to do something on a daily basis to keep it there. Because the markets have their own way of doing things, right? If demand for dollars increase, increases, right, then the value of the dollar will actually naturally rise in the market. And so the exchange rate will move from 1 to 1,500. It'll move to 1 to 1,700, right? In other words, the value of the near falls, the value of the dollar rises. So what the central bank needs to do is it needs to stand ready and intervene in the market, either buying liras or buying dollars in order to keep the value where it wants it to stay. Right? Good. Why would a central bank go to this trouble to keep the exchange rate? There are many reasons. I'm going to man- mention two important ones. One. excuse the metaphor here, okay? It's like chaining yourself to the treadmill, right? If you're out of shape, and you know you need to run, or you need to walk, you could just chain yourself to the treadmill, turn it on, and throw the the key away, right? Leave it on, okay? In other words, a commitment device to achieve low inflation. When you peg your currency to the U.S. dollar, and you keep it there, what you do is you get U.S. inflation, which is low. Let's say 2% per year. Did that work for Lebanon? The answer is yes. Mostly. Yeah, mostly, right? The last two decades, I think, from what I've seen, inflation has been right around 3%. So that's the magic of fixed exchange rates. You peg to the dollar, you get U.S. inflation. Is that good? That's good, because U.S. inflation is low, right? So good? So far, so good. All right. What's another reason? Another reason is it inspires confidence and stability in investments, foreign investments, capital flows, and in trade transactions. Right? People don't have to think all the time. What is the exchange rate today? Right? They know what it is. Okay. So that's what the peg is. Now, um, how hard it is to maintain the peg? It depends on how much ammunition you have. It's almost like defending a castle. What's the ammunition required to maintain the peg for the fixed exchange rate? It's foreign exchange reserves at the central bank. When they run out of foreign exchange reserves, they surrender the castle. It's as simple as that. Why? Because they no longer can go into the market and buy liras with U.S. dollars in order to prop up the value of the lira, which might be falling. Therefore, when a central bank runs out of foreign exchange reserves, it's over and they have to surrender. They have to float the currency. You move to a floating currency, which is a currency that's decided in the market, whose value is decided in the market on a minute to minute basis, right? Demand and supply. Are are we good so far? All right. Uh, It turns out that the magic of doing this thing can be distilled into the following trick. If the US money supply grows by 3% every year, then what you have to do in Lebanon, you have to also increase the money supply by 3% every year in Lebanon. If you increase it by more, You cannot keep the pay. Because now there will be more liras chasing those same dollars. Ah, but how can you do that if you're trying to fund the government deficit? Which is enormous, right? You can't. You can do it for a while. And you can deploy smart acrobatics called financial engineering. Right? But eventually what happens is, as you, as a central bank, increase domestic credit to the government, that will eventually crowd out reserves. Okay? And at some point, you will run out, or you will bust the seams of the money supply, and your money supply will grow by more than in the U.S., and the peg will break. The central bank in Lebanon was very smart about that process, and when it saw that it was that it had bought too much government debt, it had gone too far into funding the, the budget deficits and public debt, then what they did is they recruited the commercial banks to fund the deficit. So they were offering high interest deposits to commercial, to Lebanese commercial banks, so they could deposit dollars with the central bank, and then the central bank turned around and funded the government with the. I am oversimplifying a little, but it's what happened. And so as a result, uh, a, very, a very small portion, essentially a very large portion of the public debt was funded by the banks. And uh, that portion also grew for the central bank, central bank as well. And this sort of burst the seams of the money supply and broke the bank. You could say, more or less, that's the simple story of how this happened. Um, Next, um, I'm going to talk a little bit about, uh, focus just a little bit more on the role of the central bank. Um, It bought too much public debt. Big mistake. It held too much public debt. Also big mistake. It um, secured more funding for the government from the banks. That's not his job. That broke the bank. That caused a lot of losses to the private sector, to individuals and households, and to the banking system. But also, in these many years of the last two decades, basically, because they were trying to do this, they had to increase interest rates to entice people to keep Lebanese liras. And with higher interest rates, much higher interest rates, than what you see in Basically, in my opinion, they also cause some damage to the private sector. Because how can you invest in a profitable business when lending is expensive, right, from the bank? In other words, when borrowing from the bank is costly, right? And so, an economy with very high interest rates is not really the, the healthiest place to invest in growth, uh, in growth businesses. Okay, and that's another sort of hidden cost that we cannot see because we don't have really counterfactual. Some uh, so to conclude the 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 central banking part of this crisis, they employed complex, and often opaque, and uh, uh, what I called before financial engineering. They were the only game in town, it's true, probably because of, as uh, Dr. Ajami might also discuss, lack of governance and political uh, dysfunction in the country. but they couldn't have been miracle workers. And that leads me to the first, uh, the first lesson that I see from this crisis. That large internal and external imbalances, the external borrowing that I mentioned, and, and the public uh, debt that I mentioned, are really part of the fundamentals in the country, right? And you have to compare those with economic growth. And if economic growth is not there to sustain them, then they're not sustainable. It doesn't matter how technocratically competent your central bank is. Fundamentals will eventually catch up with you as they have, unfortunately, in Lebanon. Um, In fact, it's interesting how the markets, the markets can be wise often, right? And they knew and they gave us signs or them signs all along that the peg was not credible. So for instance, the risk premium and interest rates in Lebanon were very high, even dollar deposits were paying much higher interest rates than dollar deposits would pay over here in the US. Why? because people thought that there was an elevated risk associated with US dollar deposits in Lebanon. That's one. The other, the other was the fact that the Lebanese economy was, is still, highly dollarized. That is another sign of lack of confidence for people, right? They prefer to hold more foreign currency because they think it will hold its value. Even though they've had, for years, for decades, a fixed exchange rate system. So that's interesting. Um, And uh, let me briefly now talk uh, about some avenues for recovery. There are no silver bullets, as all of you probably know and understand. So there is a high indebtedness problem that has to be dealt with, probably through debt restructuring. Most of the countries that, that have gone through this process have done some form of debt restructuring. What does that mean? It means that a lot of losses will have to be materialized, right? A lot of losses will have to be realized. And uh, a loss distribution system will have to be designed. Now, that is really hard. That's not something that economists can do. That probably has to be a political and democratic process. It has to be fair. It has to be consistent. It has to be legally stable, uh, and it has to not hold the economy hostage, right? It has to create the conditions for the for the launch um, for a relaunch of the of the um, Lebanese economy after this. Um, I think there needs to be a phased fiscal adjustment. So, what does it mean? Uh, what that means is probably that in order to bring the government the budget deficit, back to a more balanced position, Okay, uh, austerity is probably not a good idea, because this is a people that is actually suffering, severely suffering, right? lack of medication, lack of gas, lack of electricity, uh, fuels, all, all sorts of um, medicine, all sorts of basic needs are not being met. So doing more austerity. And really fast is probably not a good idea. But a phased fiscal adjustment would make sense. I think um, some growth-enhancing reforms. This is really hard, but but people, particularly public policymakers in Lebanon, need to think about how can the economy grow. Is tourism the answer? Is jewelry the answer? What is the answer, right? What are some sectors that can create growth in the future, right? And fortunately, uh, Lebanon seems to me has a lot of human capital. In other words, it's not suffering from lack of education, okay, and brain power, right? Um, also, an independent, and I emphasize, the word, independent central bank that is transparent and accountable is critical for a recovery Lebanon. It's critical so that people can actually trust in the value of their currency, and trust in the macroeconomic management of their government. Okay? But also, realizing and understanding that central banks have a lot of power, a lot of influence, a lot of impact, but they're not miracle workers. Okay, They cannot do everything. Um, a banking system reform is another one just by the looks of it, it seems to me that the banking system has to probably be smaller, much smaller than it is. It has to be healthier, in other words, better capitalized. Okay, And uh, those would be three good places to start when it comes to the banking system. Um, finally, the exchange rate, and then I'll leave it there. The exchange rate. The Lebanese policymakers will have to make a decision: what is a good exchange rate for their economy? Can the public trust a new fixed exchange rate system? I I think I think it's fair to say that that's going to be very difficult, and so they may need to think about adopting a flexible exchange rate system, which will buffer a lot of shocks, a lot of external shocks from foreign capital, from trade, even from remittances, right? And that will free up the hands of the central bank to focus on inflation and uh, employment at home. So those are the avenues I see for coming out of this uh, economic and financial crisis. And so I will leave it there and I think we take questions in the end, right? Yes. Okay. Thank you.
1: Thank you, Professor Bautista, so much. I need to apologize. forgot to put my mask on. So how many business questions are, are there? He can come up with a question, a um, lot to digest. I'm about to introduce His Excellency, Ambassador uh, Aya next week, Before I do that, I'd like to acknowledge another ambassador in the, in the presence here, uh, His Excellency, Faris Aid, former ambassador to Paraguay. Paraguay, yes. Paraguay, and yes. Late, lately, Bulgaria, probably shortly. And Bulgaria. Yes, sir. Good to have you, sir. Well, Thank you. I also uh, would like to acknowledge uh, my dear colleague uh, Usam al-Din and Abbas Hajamat. Uh, between them, I think these are dynamos in the community that are becoming uh, you know, the heart and, and mind of the community. So our next speaker is, uh, is his excellency, former Ambassador, uh, Dr. Ali Ajami. He has a PhD in public language and literature from the Lebanese University of Beirut. He is a career diplomat, or was, teacher, journalist, writer, and poet. Former ambassador to Lebanon, uh, of Lebanon to Ivory Coast and Sweden. He uh, is a former council general of Lebanon in Detroit and other places. Published ten books of short stories and poetry. In 2017, founded, he founded the, he founded with others the Dearborn, uh, in Dearborn, the American Center for Culture and Arts. I don't know why I'm suffering because I have the distinct honor of uh, serving as a board member of that society, as uh, uh, does Mr. Um So I asked uh, His Excellency to share his uh, impressions uh, from his latest visit to Lebanon uh, and his career. Please help me welcome. Him. <laughs>
3: Thank you, Dr. Govardi. Uh, let me start by this. Due to our love to Lebanon, we used to say always, Lebanon might be one of the smallest countries on earth. I don't know how, how many of you have been to, to Lebanon. Uh, lots. So, you know, the longest coastal road from far north to far south, Mr. Judge, how are you? From far north to far south is only 150 miles. That's it. So tiny, so small. But despite this, Lebanon to us is one of the greatest countries of Earth. So simple. Mr. Bawadi was talking about immigrant Lebanese immigration, If you go anywhere, any possible place you think of, you will find the Lebanese. I used to say a joke about that, you know. When uh, Neil Armstrong landed on the moon, he didn't find only soil. There was a Lebanese welcoming him. Well, welcome to the Lebanese uh, government or Lebanese country on, on the moon. So by this, I want to tell you something. I'm not going to talk about politics. If you think that uh, <laughs> ambassador will be speaking of politics, I'm not. Although everybody knows that the political sectarian regime is behind all the miseries we are facing since ever till ever. I'm not going to talk about corruption. I although everybody knows that in the main structure of all the reasons that stand behind what's happening in Lebanon is corruption so simply everywhere 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 and just to give you some information to those who doesn't who do not know Lebanon very well Lebanon, as, as uh, Dr. Robert, showed us on the eastern coast of the Mediterranean. We are, and I think this might be one of the reasons of what's happening to us, we live in a very volatile area. Just look at the borders. From the east and the north, we have Syria. From the south, we have Palestine, Israel. Just not far away, we have Saudi Arabia. Not far away, we have Iraq. We have Iran. So don't forget that in, on the Lebanese soil now, we have more than 600,000 Palestinian refugees that were driven out since 1948. We have about more than 2 million Syrian refugees that were driven out due to the civil war. Imagine it. You are in this tiny little country, about four. By the way, we didn't do any census since 1930. Since 1930. No census were done in Lebanon. We say that the population is around 5 million, 6 million. Who knows? Who knows? But imagine, let's say, 5 million, and we have about 3 million of Palestinians and Syrian refugees. Just imagine how this is going on. Well, as I said, I'm not going to talk about politics. I'm not going to talk about corruption. I will just talk about the simple, decent Lebanese, how they are facing the horrors of their daily life, how they are dealing with the never-ending crises, crises that keep reproducing itself on all aspects and levels, mainly on the humanitarian, social, and economic aspects. I just returned from Lebanon two month a month ago, two months ago. I was there for two months. I never been away than maximum one year, six months, one year. This time sad Sad. to the maximum for the first time in my life I really felt sorry for being there so simple what you see in Lebanon if you go there it's catastrophe it's behind imagination behind imagination you know It's not easy at all to see your country dying, dying. It's not easy to see not only the country, your dreams, your personal dreams about this country, this beauty. By the way, Lebanon is one of the most beautiful, charming countries on Earth, you can you can never see a place where you can do sky uh, snow skiing now, and in fifteen minutes you do uh, sea skiing. So it's, it's amazing, amazing beauty. But unfortunately, what happens? As if a hurricane came and bah, landed on us so severely in one. I want to invite you to come over with me on a ride to Lebanon. I will guide you here and there to see exactly what I saw, what I witnessed. But but before this, I'll just give you some, in addition to what our professor mentioned about economy, I'm just giving some uh, uh, international data about the Lebanese financial crisis. says that Lebanon's inflation has skyrocketed in the past two years as the country's financial and economic crisis spirals out of control, and politicians doing very little to mitigate the impact. The currency has lost nearly imagine. The currency, the Lebanese currency, lost almost 90% of its value. 90, I will give you an example. As it was mentioned, I think it's still there, yes. One dollar equals 1500 Lebanese dias. Let's suppose I am uh, an employee, I have, I mean, my salary is one million and a half Lebanese dias. It was how much? One thousand dollars. That was lovely. We were living happily. Now, suddenly, in a couple of I don't know how many months. The value of the Lebanese Dira dropped from fifteen hundred to a dollar to twenty-five thousand. Can you imagine it? Your salary was 1000 dollars. $1, it's now less than sixty dollars. Sixty dollars. I mean, how could this happen? How could, how could you face, as a simple, ordinary Lebanese citizen, how could you face such horrible aspects? Also, Bloomberg said that more than three-quarters of the residents of Lebanon plunged into poverty. The United Nations, they estimated that 78% of the Lebanese life lives below the poverty line and that more than 1 million Lebanese need relief assistance to cover their basic needs, including food. Food in Lebanon? When did we really need, feel the need for food in Lebanon? Now we are. The ESPO, which is another organization of of the United Nations, they warned that poverty in Lebanon has drastically increased over the past year, and it might reach above 80%. The World Bank, they said that Lebanon is suffering through a financial crisis which could be ranked among the world's three worst since the mid-1800s, and that Lebanon has lost more than 90% of its value, etc., etc. et, cetera, et, cetera, et cetera. Now let's begin our journey. I invite you to come with me. You are the father of a 10-year-old baby, 10-month-old baby. The baby feels sick. She has high fever that exceeded 104 uh, Fahrenheit. You just need pills, Tylenol, something that reduce the high temperature. You cannot find No pharmacies, no hospitals to take her in. You're holding your baby on your hand. She's crying. Slowly, slowly, she collapses, and she passes away. What would you do? You are an employee as I mentioned with this as an example I gave about the the, the, uh, the value of the Lebanese currency if you are this person <laughs> that you find you found your salary is dropping to sixty dollars a month instead of $1,000, what would you do? You are the same employee. You know very well that your actual salary is not sufficient enough to buy food for your family, save other needs. What would you be thinking of doing? Would you commit suicide? A lot did that. In fact, would you? Fly away, immigrate. So many did that. And to tell you the truth, I am pretty sure if the embassy, the United States, or any other embassy, opened the gates of immigration for the Lebanese population, no Lebanese would stay in Lebanon. One of the horrible scenes I have seen, the humiliating scene, the gas station. You are uh, an ordinary citizen. You want to fill your car with gas. You search for a gas station and here what you see. Lines, one, two, three, four, I counted once, seven lines of cars, one, two, three, four, five, just waiting to go into the gas station to fill up their tanks. And the length of this line exceeds to five miles. I never seen I've never seen in my life humiliation like this. You might sleep all the night in your car till you have the chance the next morning to fill up some gas. Are you ready to stand in line if you are in place of this? You are the same same, uh, ordinary citizen. And you know, lately, the Lebanese authorities, before they were supporting, gas they were supporting medication lately they no more no more if you wanna buy a medication that costed you let's say ten dollars before now it's more than a hundred dollars even Thailand what would you do if you are in this place of this this person If you cannot buy milk, your babies. There's one funny thing, you know, we always say in Lebanon, which I think in in English says, uh, save your money for a rainy day. Okay, you were. Saving some money, put it in the bank, okay, for the rainy day, and just in a sudden, you cannot touch this money. It's no more there, it just evaporated. And the role of central bank professor is so ugly. It Central Bank of Lebanon and its governor, they are one of the major reasons behind all the ugliness we are seeing now in Lebanon. If you are a businessman and your business was shut off, what do you do? If you are an employee at, with a businessman and you were laid off, what would you do? We don't have any, by the way, if you were laid off. There's no central government like the government of the United States that might give you some unemployment benefits. There's no social, no social assistance. At all. I might go on building up drastic and cruel scenes for hours. The details of what your eyes catch are painful, inhuman, and unbearable. You know what? If you walk in the streets, you could see people walking like robots, open, vacant eyes. They don't know what, where, what, where they are going. They don't know what all this is leading to. The social and the humanitarian outcome of the crisis is overwhelming, horrifying, shocking, outrageous. No need to mention that result of all this, the crime rate has increased dramatically. Homicides increased by around 50%. Crime, theft crimes increased by 150%. And also, uh, addiction and substance use is also soaring. Now, I want to end by this. Did we see it coming? Samuel, did we see it coming? I think yes. It was looming somewhere, even since the Civil War, even before. I think what is behind all this is the crooked creation of Lebanon since 1920. You know, who doesn't know history of Lebanon? Lebanon was created by France at the time, September 1st, 1920. General Bogoro announced the Great Lebanon and see how great it is. And uh, the ugliest part of the story is now. There's no hope. I didn't see when I was there, I am not seeing now, any hope, any slight hope in the horizon. You know, when you be driving a car in a long tunnel, you would see a dots of light, slight spot by the end of the tunnel. You don't see it. It's dark. It's dark. It's crazy dark. It's ugly dark. To the far end. Uh, one of the latest jokes I just heard today. They say that in Lebanon, Lebanon is an internal American, French, Saudi, Iranian affairs. So the Lebanese people are kindly asked not to interfere. Thank you very much. Yeah, this is
1: profound, although we have an idea Uh, our next speaker, if you're an Arab American, needs no introduction. He is the voice of the community and has been for a long time. He uh, started a bilingual weekly newspaper in 1984, which became the largest of its kind in the country, the Arab American News, for Saddam al-Bhatam. Uh, is the largest and oldest uh, one of its kind. Uh, Mr. Siblani, Usama Siblani, our next speaker, appeared repeatedly on local, national, and international uh, uh, TV networks. and He is heavily quoted in local, national, and international publications addressing Muslim and Arab American issues. He received several local, national, uh, uh, and international awards. In 2013, he was inducted to the Michigan Journalism Hall of Fame, the only person. to have that honor bestowed upon him, uh, other than the legendary Helen Thomas, who was a White House correspondent for many years. Uh, So please help me welcome to the podium, my dear friend, Mr. Sami Siblani.
4: some actions in here. Uh, thank you, Dr. Goward. And uh, it's, um, I don't know what would you do uh, speaking after the economist and, and a politician. So uh, the only thing that works like that is a religious leader. <laughs> <laughs> so what I'm going to do is I'm going to be I think, you know, when Ambassador asked me if I see it coming, I was in Lebanon too in August, and I saw the lines. And I met with people the first time. Actually, I did not meet with politicians in Lebanon. I've always met with leaders uh, in the Middle East and in Lebanon when I traveled there. The last time I was in Lebanon was seven years ago in 2015. I did see the situation in Lebanon going from bad wars and wars. Do I see a light at the end of the tunnel? Yes I do. Because I believe, now, Dr. Bawardi told me don't talk politics, and I told him there is politics in a tuna fish sandwich. (laughs) Everything is about politics. Mm -hmm. It's how we handle our economy. It's a political decision, like the professor said. It's how you plan your budget it's how you manage your banking system i think he mentioned something very important that the banking system in lebanon set the stage for this bankruptcy when they raised the interest rate on the lira many people did not want to invest because they can make more money in putting their money in the bank and getting interest. Sometimes interest was eighteen percent, twenty percent, twenty-five percent, forty, and forty
3: to forty percent. Yeah. So
4: they were collecting the money, planning the bankruptcy. I'll tell you a story about Lebanon and the banking system. Goldman Sachs went to Lebanon to do a study on the economic situation, the banking situation of Lebanon and how Lebanon structured economically. And they spent time looking at the numbers and how they are managing their economy and the banking and everything else. And then they came up to the conclusion, don't do anything. Because nothing that makes sense in this banking system and then how they do business in Lebanon. And if you try to fix it, it's going to collapse. Ambassador Ajami talked about Lebanon is in the center of a volatile region. And he did mention what's bordering Lebanon. Lebanon is bordered by Israel. From the south and the west. And from the east and the north, Syria. And then the Mediterranean from the east. Or from the west, I'm sorry, from the west. So you know the story about Israel and Lebanon. There is no way that there will be a trade or any cooperation politically, militarily, economically between Israel and Lebanon. They're in a state of war. So the only place where Lebanon could breathe is Syria. And we know what happened in 2011. War started in Syria. So that shut down the only breathing space of Lebanon with the rest of the world. Like if they, if the people who are the farmers, the people who were um, having, uh, you know, manufacturing uh, facilities in Lebanon, because they existed those, but they could not sell their product anywhere because they used to go through Syria, to Iraq, to Saudi Arabia, to Jordan, I couldn't do it anymore from 2011 until now, and this crisis in Lebanon. I don't want to talk about what the Ambassador me said, it is because we have a sectarian government, and the sectarian government is based on you appoint this person there from the Christian religion, I am the leader of the Muslims, I will appoint another one from the Muslim community. And therefore, when you are sitting around the table, you are dividing and slicing the cake between those sectarian powers. So there is no accountability because if you touch my Muslim employee, I'm going to touch your Christian employee somewhere else. So there is a cover, political cover by the sectarian government that has failed the Lebanese people in accountability. There is no accountability. And corruption is not on the top. Corruption is from the bottom to the top. So a, a, a person who is working in the Ministry of Finance, for example, who is in charge of opening the door and checking people when they come in, he is corrupt because he will, if he is a bribe, he will let someone who is standing in line far behind to go first because he got bribed. And his manager is the same and his other manager is the same, and the minister is the same. So it's a corrupt system, and corruption in, ends up in catastrophe everywhere. So this is this is the major problem, sectarianism. Because there is no accountability, there is no democracy. It's fake democracy. That contributed a great deal to the catastrophe. And how did we arrive there? Please, don't blame the French. Let's blame us, Lebanese. Mean the French gave us independence, or we took independence from the French. And since then, we've done nothing but going backward instead of forward. And then we have a problem with going through Syria. But on our other border, Lebanon, we have a state that's very aggressive. And it has invaded Lebanon in 1982 and in 1978 and in 2006 and occupied part of Lebanon until 2000 bombed the hell out of Beirut. And in order to reconstruct, you need to go and start kissing hands and borrowing money or getting grants from your brothers in Saudi Arabia. And Kuwait is inviting the beast to the feast. That's what's happening. So, why are we spinning and saying this is not a self-infected, self-infected, tested problem? It is. But it's not only inflicted by Lebanese. There are issues that have been inflicted on Lebanon. When I said to you that, Lebanon is surrounded by Israel, and by Syria. Very, in the last maybe six, seven months, there has been a discussion that Syria is recovering. And the Lebanese started to talk to the Syrian regime in order to open the border and start trade and all that stuff. And all of a sudden, they bombed the only port in Lebanon, paralyzing any kind of hope and destroying any kind of hope in exporting through sea and blocked Lebanon totally from the world. Lebanon could recover if they allow Lebanon to dig in its oil and in, in its gas, it will pay us all that and it will be a very rich country that the Lebanese will not be standing in line for gas. Even the gas and the oil problem, it is a creative problem. It's created by the outside world and the inside. There was gas when people were standing in line in Lebanon But there was gas, there was oil, there was fuel, plenty of medicine. But because the government is not functioning properly, they could not control the people who were having these in their warehouses and trying to manipulate the public and make more money. Because corruption is the name of the game. If Lebanon is allowed to dig and produce oil and gas and sell it to the world, Lebanon will be a rich country today. Who's preventing this from happening? The United States of America. I'm speaking politics. It's not political. It's true. There is a problem in Lebanon. There is corruption in Lebanon. There is a sectarian rule in Lebanon that's creating and bringing on this kind of a problem. But there are other forces also that's pouring more more fuel on the fire. And frankly, the bankers in Lebanon, the professor said that we have a lot of banks in Lebanon. I mean, like what, 170 banks?
3: 50 something.
4: No, we have over 170, that's what, that's what I read the other day. And also, by the way, 50, let me go down to 50. 50 banks is too much. You know, for Lebanon, 50 banks is too much. Even in the banking industry, there are sectarian rules. And this bank belongs to that person. Even in the media, this station belongs to this group, this television station belongs to it. this newspaper belongs to this group. So there is no accountability in Lebanon. The government of Lebanon is based, it's sitting on a tripod that has been governing since 1989 and before. But it has failed to move Lebanon forward on economic, on political, on social issues. So yes, we do need to revisit Lebanon internally. And then we need to start working, like the United States right now. As soon as the gas and the oil crisis erupted in Lebanon and people were standing in line, Hezbollah said, okay, we're going to go to Iran and get oil. And all of a sudden, the United States said, no, 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 no. We'll, bring, we'll bring the oil through uh, Syria uh, uh, from, from, uh, from Egypt and electricity from Jordan through Syria. Okay. Well, the Lebanese people have been living without electricity since 1976. Why didn't you do that? Why this could not have happened before? Lebanon today lives in, in, in the dark age. Can you imagine that you're sitting in your home and you only get two hours a day electricity? What is this? This doesn't make sense. It does not make sense. But the Lebanese have suffered. A lot, and they said, No, the light at the end of the tunnel, we're gonna survive the crisis because Lebanon is not the first time that goes through this crisis. So, I am, I believe, foreign interference, sectarianism, corruption, greed is the reason that why lebanon it is what it is today yes i believe the light is at the end of the tunnel you know why because i believe that the lebanese people can do the impossible we have been through a lot and we were able to cross these bridges and build a better country i believe in the phoenix I believe it. I believe in the ingenuity, in the intellectual, in the pioneers, in Jibran Khalil Jibran, in Nakhia al in Michael Debele, who did the first surgery heart surgery in, in the world. I believe the Lebanese can bring Lebanon back. We just need to leave them alone so they can do that. Thank you.
1: Okay, um, no, you've been here for two hours now, So, But we would will be willing to take advantage of this opportunity and have an exchange. I so might please have you stay a little longer. We have food waiting for us outside, uh, at least.
4: By the way, I'd like to welcome our chief judge of the 20th District Court here before. So, if you guys have any tickets or anything like this, stand <laughs> by the way, uh, Judge Hunt, Gene Hunt, is half Lebanese or quarter Lebanese? Quarter? 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 Lebanese. <laughs> quarter Lebanese. <laughs> He's from Hasrun.
0: Hasrun
4: in the north.
1: We're all Lebanese. <laughs> yes. So let me just jump start things by proposing a question while you jog your memory and, and I urge you to uh, challenge yourselves and ask questions because your students, you're the ones who will charter, the future, and we're all transnational now. So my question basically is to each of the panelists briefly, please. Um, Osama actually ended up on a a profound note also, uh, in addition to what you've heard uh, from the ambassador and Dr. Miteza, uh, that there is a light at the end of the tunnel. What is the role of the diaspora? In general, in economic crises, Dr. Miteza, what, do the, what role do the diaspora play in addition to remittances and intellectually, culturally, politically? And I know better than to tell Usama anything. I, just, I thought we'll, we'll concentrate on the humanitarian crisis because there's a lot to unpack. But we are political beings, and no subject is taboo, especially if the questions come from you. You have free reign as students. If you took my class at all, you know that. What is the role of the diaspora? Now that we travel back and forth, and our lives are intertwined with our homelands, um, it weighs on me constantly uh, in regards to what can we in the diaspora, as an extended community, you don't have to be Lebanese. It serves American national interest to have fair play and democracy digging roots in the region. And yet, we hamper that, as you heard, uh, Mr. siplani mentioned, proposed to you, so what if you yeah, know? I'll, can... I'll, say, I'll say this to, to this answer here. I am, of course, an econo-
4: economic professor. It is better to answer the question. But I believe that the Lebanese and, and the Arabs in general have done a lot to support Lebanon. Uh, the problem that we are facing today is that uh, when the banking industry in Lebanon collapsed, People lost trust in in the banking industry. And therefore, me as a person sitting here in in the United States and having US dollars and I would like to send to my family, I cannot send them to a bank. And Western Union have done some good stuff for for allowing money to be transferred, but within a limit. And now the government, the United States, States, the custom. uh, some uh, border patrol, they harass people at the airport, especially Lebanese for taking you know, money overseas, especially if they are taking more than $10,000. A lot of them don't even know that you are not allowed to take more than $10,000 unless you file a you know, forum with the CDP saying that I'm taking 20 dollars $30,000, $50,000. You can take as much as you can as you want. But the thing is that they don't even know the law, and they do not have. Like tomorrow, I have a meeting with the Department of Homeland Security to talk about this issue. Put a sign at the airport to say: If you have more than ten thousand dollars and you're traveling abroad, you have to file a form with the CBT and go downstairs and get the form and file. It. A lot of people don't know, so so you cannot take money or you're scared to take money overseas with you, and you cannot transfer it through the bank. So the diaspora right now, their hands are tied, you know, of how to help Lebanon. Politically speaking, you know, we have been very, very loud and, and, and you know, clear with the US government, with the senates and, and the Congress, that Lebanon needs help out of this crisis. But all that we see is more roadblocks that have been thrown, you know, in, in the road of the Lebanese recovery. And the United States carries a lot of weight and they throw all this weight in order to you know, stop the progress in Lebanon and, and put pressure for many reasons. I don't want to get into it right now because it's one reason political, political huh? for one reason only. The
1: security.
4: Well you know yeah, look, I I, if, I, I, if I if I was on a television TV interview, I would say that everything is happening in Lebanon right now, it has one title. Israel. In the interest of Israel. Everything you've seen, <coughs> all the political shenanigans right now that we're seeing in Lebanon, most of it is in
1: this direction. Building out what you said, someone and to the <coughs> other panelists, Ambassador and Aqir what else can it be
3: I want to add two things to what Mr. Sablani said. One, I think uh, the Lebanese guys, mm-hmm. they know very well that. If the diaspora is not sending over money to their families, starvation will happened a long time ago. Nowadays, if you send your family $100 per month, that's a fortune. Ambassador, can we nudge the US
1: government to do what exactly?
3: I don't want to talk about politics. I'll leave it to Mr. Seplani and to, the, to, the, to our professor. I, will, I want to mention that, Lebanese, Lebanese,
4: that the Lebanese uh, uh, extract of oil and gas.
1: They can pay for everything. Everything. But just to be clear, there is huge deposits of natural gas off the coast of Lebanon that are being utilized now by the state of Israel. This is a statement of the fact. They control. And if you think that you can just go and extract your gas in Your territorial waters, it hasn't been that simple. So, this is just to explain. You will not that. be
3: permitted to do to take it out. Not, they're not no, by way. the United
1: States,
4: by the way. No way.
1: The United States will not allow Lebanon to track their gas and oil. Why don't you go ahead? So, I have a question for you. Um, you mentioned about, about Syria as like a gateway of um, the open trade with them. It's like a part of the solution that we could um, face. So, um, But you didn't mention that we could also go towards China and jump the US, um, stop depending on the US and the West, and move more towards China and Iran. Well,
4: yes, you can. But the problem is that the United States will not allow our government to go anywhere. The United States do not want to help Lebanon recover for a reason that we've mentioned. This is the whole thing in Lebanon is Starve You starve them in order to submit. That's what's happening in Lebanon.
3: Yes, there are corruptions
4: in Lebanon. You know, don't get me wrong. This, the corruption in Lebanon, the sectarianism in Lebanon, those were who, who formed this kind this of government? The best ally of the United States, Saudi Arabia, who is right now punishing Lebanon for the same reason. So I believe, I strongly believe, Lebanon can recover from the corruption. They can recover from the sectarianism. Because the Lebanese people, they have the will to do it. They're not able to do it because of the political pressure that is being applied on them from the outside, regionally and internationally, including Iran. I'm not saying that only the Saudis and the you know the United States. No, even Iran is involved. I mean it is a it is a, a problem that is putting Lebanon on a standstill.
1: So it's, it's more kind of like economic war instead of economic crisis. What is that? Economic war. Like the it's being that led to economic crisis. Economic what? War war. War. Well the, the economic war is, Iran is in action
4: right now. Yes. I mean the US and China is is in a war right now, if you
1: cannot, if you can't see that, we definitely need a second panel for these to flesh these things out. Go ahead. OK,
0: this might be a silly question, but I know that China is doing a lot of work in Africa right now for their own econo- economy, right? Is Lebanon doing something similar? Because I know there's a diaspora in Africa right now. Are those Lebanese people working individually? Or is this uh, also backed by the government somehow?
4: mean the like Lebanese.
0: The, yeah, like put the quote I water mean he, was, he was in
4: the in the foot of walk
0: right I mean. there's yeah. like a community there so I'm wondering are they working individually? Are these entrepreneurs you know, in, in Ivory
3: Coast I've been an ambassador for six years down there. We have about hundred thousand Lebanese. Right. That's why the data you have here about uh, it's not it's not uh, it's not all accurate yes. you know? so we have about hundred thousand Lebanese in the Ivory Coast, mm-hmm. so powerful financially Even the president, the new president, Al-Hazan Wattara, he said it once when our president uh, came over there. He said that the Lebanese community in the Cote d'Ivoire hold their hands more than 60% of the economy of the country. But all this is not backed by our government. No, no.
0: There's no sort of a or anything?
3: At all, at all. We are neglected. Neglected to the full, to the maximum. Just imagine how far we can go by
1: neglect. We are. Dr. Mitenza, is there an equivalent of a deep economic crisis uh, in home countries of diasporas, or something akin to this, in uh, least in Europe, for example?
2: Well, I think uh, <clears throat> quite a few transition economies, when they moved from a socialist, uh, economy to market economy, in that first couple of years they went through similar economic collapse that you see in in Lebanon today. And uh, that's when you see high inflation, and that's when you see the, of course, the currency collapse. Uh, That's when you see food and medicine and fuel become essentially unaffordable. As was explained really artfully by my colleagues here, and uh, and that's the gray zone where where basically the markets don't function well because at the root at the foundation of a well-functioning market is the price, and when the price is distorted, let's say by the central bank saying no no the price of the currency is fifteen hundred right. But the other market over there says that it's twenty-five thousand, <laughs> and so of course markets are out of work. and uh, and it does take a few years uh, for this for this gray zone to be for this foggy period to sort of clear up, and for the markets to start to function. What I would add, and I would agree with uh, both of my colleagues here, is that in terms of the role of diaspora is that um, financial assistance um, or um, humanitarian assistance, it is really hard to, to get started. And in that, in that first crisis period, it's really hard to deploy it and to deploy it in the right size at the right time and to take it to the right people, to where the need is. And so I think the case of Lebanon, from what little I've seen, shows that the diaspora has played an incredibly useful and helpful role in filling that gap that the humanitarian assistance hasn't really filled. And the other part, the other role for the diaspora that I would, that I would see is really what what, uh, what you collectively have done here to advocate for what is really happening in Lebanon and how dire the economic circumstances are, how dysfunctional the political system is, uh, and to raise awareness. Uh, because I think that's, that's also very helpful. It's very helpful for the international community to know what is happening, uh, to what degree this crisis um, is really getting out of hand, right? Yeah,
3: that's what we are doing here. Excuse me, just a moment. Uh, that's what we are doing advocating our culture. That's the role that we are playing really good in here. We have created this uh, Arab-American Center for Culture and Arts, start from Dearborn, and we are—we have deployed, we've reached uh, 18 Arab countries, direct uh, panels and that stuff. So I invite uh, youngsters to join us. It's, it's a, nice, a nice platform that can uh, contribute to the, to the safeguard of our culture, of our heritage. I really do wish that you could come over.
1: I'm happy to advertise that or announce it on to all the student organizations, but I cannot do that unless there is receptiveness over Did you have a question? Yes. Actually,
0: even though I'm not a current student, I'm a former and happy to come back and see that whole room of people, student, caring for the economic crisis of Lebanon. So my question is for the economic professor. Um, In terms of finding um, a solution for the um, current uh, financial like finding a restructuring of the uh, financial sector and new monetary policy framework for Lebanon, let me just pause for a moment and believe that the security and uh, politics has nothing to do with the economy, and we're trying to finding the reframing, restructuring for the financial sector, and uh, in order to regain um, uh, trust and stability. How possible and over like how long uh, like over time period could this happen to regain the stability and uh, reform financial?
2: I, I would say many years.
0: Many many, many decades, many years.
2: 15, 20. Um, <laughs> if, if you're talking about if you're talking about getting back to the same level of per capita GDP, is it
0: even possible to regain like that?
2: Well, oh, I, I yeah. think it is. I think it is possible. I mean, uh, I think the brain power, the knowledge, the culture that made that possible, um, the beautiful city possible, uh, is still there. Uh, much of it, anyway. Uh, and so I, I would like to remain an optimist and say that it is possible. And so I'm going to be a very sort of cold-blooded economist here and say that, for example, if the economy grows, let's say, at 7% per year, where it is right now, at 7% per year, my student who is there, one of those three triplets, <laughs> uh, he will tell you that an economy that grows at 7% per year will take 10 years to double. And so what that means is that if they've lost roughly half of their GDP per capita, it'll take about 10 years for the GDP to go back at 7% per year on average. And this is a, sort of a very, a very sort of uh, uh, formal leg, right? And sort of formula-driven kind of answer. More mathematical than really realistic and on the ground. Uh, I haven't been there. I don't know what it's like to live there now. I don't know to what extent the, the markets have been damaged, right? And um, I don't know what sort of um, connections and networks and uh, complex, uh, you know, uh, economic links have been damaged and restored, right, realistically.
0: No, I definitely. But I think definitely. that
2: it's possible. It's no, possible. I, that's what I would say. That sort of framework is what I would. Estimate. I really, I really
4: think that, you know, I really think that what's happening in Lebanon, the crisis is is more political than Absolutely. economic, because the economy of the first of all, Lebanon is a small country. I mean, it doesn't take a genius to figure out what's going on, or what's going out. From Lebanon, as far as the economy, you know how much we are getting in. Like you said, we're, we're five billion dollars in, in in export and and twenty billion dollars in import. So it doesn't make sense, you know. So you can fix this, and we're talking about a small country, small economy, nothing big. The biggest problem that we have in Lebanon is political. It's not really economic, because the corruption in Lebanon, the 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 government in Lebanon, no accountability was like for example, you know, you talked about the the, the, the central bank in Lebanon, and uh, you know the the chief of the government of, of the bank. It's not accountable to anyone. He can refuse even to go to the parliament to to, to address the parliament or to bring him bring him into the uh, you know to the uh, ministry because he is covered by political sectarian rules. So. The, the biggest problem that we have is the political system that we have right now was made, manufactured, exported by the Saudis. Imagine that this, the Saudi Arabia, the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia, is
1: creating a political system for Lebanon.
4: It's a yeah. disaster.
1: So then I would agree. And I would agree. two students with questions I'd like to hear from them. One, yeah. Um, two, and then my dear colleague Mr. Sure. I'm just wondering about the role of uh, voting for diaspora because now recently there's been registration to vote, which is going to begin around February, I'm sure it's involved with the ambassador. Um, I'm wondering if that's going to be able to spark any type of change or if it's still under sectarian rule, I know Lebanon is under the economic gravity of all the countries surrounding it. And the ladies are putting on economic sanctions as well, I wonder if Lebanon can ever become independent of other nations around it or it's always going to be involved in. Russian and Chinese oil trying to come on our coast and remove oil or refine. I wonder if it can ever become independent through voting or through voting.
3: You know what, we, we, we always have, have hope. I'm sorry that somebody might some of thought that I don't have hope. I don't have hope. Now I don't have hope. Lebanon is a hopeless case. Why? There is a, a, a genius equation from one part, you say that the only, the only solution to resolve all the problems of Lebanon is to destroy completely sectarian political system and build a new one. This is one part of the equation. On the other side of the equation, is this possible in Lebanon? No. No. That's why I say I don't feel. Nobody would would have this despair. Nobody would feel that he doesn't have hope in the resurrection of his country. But what I see, and I'm sure that everybody, anybody of you, knows what I'm talking about. In a sectarian regime, Mr. Siblani said, uh, talked about the governor of, of, of uh, the central bank, that nobody can talk to him. He is unaccountable. Why? Why? Just because he's a Maronite and the chief patriarch of the Maronite will defend him. I remember a few months ago when somebody said that, you know, during the era of uh, Fuad Senure, he was the prime minister and uh, uh, finance, minister of finance, 11, listen, $11 billion disappeared completely from uh, the central bank without even a note, nothing, nothing at all. When he was asked why, just explain to us how this money disappeared, evaporated,
1: the Mufti. It was not him
3: that defended him. It was the Mufti, the chief sheikh of the Sunni, uh, said, no, this is not tolerated. You cannot talk to this guy. It is an attack against Sunnis. Amen. Come on. So what I believe that every religion in Lebanon, they defend their own roles always like this. And the same thing, you can talk about this uh, if you talk about the Shiite, about any, any, any region. That'd be,
1: that'd be That's a cool. example. OK, we have a question over there.
2: Where? Yeah, uh, I have a question, economic in nature. In the past couple of months, we've been hearing a lot about the uh, potential stock market crash. Uh, companies are at all-time highs. Uh, the Omicron variant was
0: freaking out investors a couple of weeks ago. If something like that were to happen, how would
2: that affect uh, Lebanon, seeing as the leader so impacted? Well, we had a we had a financial crisis uh, what 12 years ago, uh, more than 12 years ago, and uh, I think the crisis was so severe that it, it impacted the whole world. In fact, it was called the global financial crisis, right? Uh, and uh, so there's no no question that Lebanon, uh, along with the rest of the world, will be would be impacted if, if we have a, a similar uh, financial crisis like the one that occurred in 2008, 2009. Uh, no questions about it. Mr. Salman, you had a
0: question?
1: Sorry. Thank you. Uh, best best you season. Season. I'm sorry. Um, I'd like to know that uh, one issue that uh, hasn't been addressed, is the national identity of the peoples of Lebanon. And I I intentionally pronounce the S in the people, because we are not one people. We are, and this is really one issue, I feel, and it can be a master degree thesis, or a PhD thesis even, for anyone who is interested research. I have a question. The question is, what are the actions to Mr. M- Mitza? M- thank you. What are the actions needed to develop the solution to the Lebanese economic crisis? And what are the political actions needed in parallel, internally and internationally?
2: No, this is a this is a PhD thesis. There. Right, it is, it is. It is. Well, I I will I will reinforce some of the things that have already been said here. In that, I, I do agree that there cannot be economic development without um, without healthy institutions, and healthy institutions require, of course, a healthy political governance. Um, and that's really hard. For that, we don't necessarily have models and formulas, I'm, I'm guessing. I'm not an expert on the political side of things, uh, but I would say that's probably the hardest part to get right, because not much will succeed on the economic sphere if the institutions, uh, particularly political governance institutions, are, are dysfunctional. Like for example, here, right
4: now, with the investment in the agriculture sector, I grew up in Lebanon until I was 21, and we did not have actual cash, actual money. We were peasants in a small village, but we
1: were peasants where we grew all of, most of our food. Of course, we bought some, like rice. We don't, we don't grow rice. But well, we didn't eat rice all the time. We ate burghul instead of rice. I'm just—it's not a joke. It is a fact. It is a fact. It's a crab weed. Right. Uh, yeah, burgle, which is cracked wheat. It, but, you know, become, this is the fact of life that very healthy, by the way. we were enforced. We were we were <laughs> forced to use. We were forced to, uh, to 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 live that life. Okay, and uh, and really uh, make sure that we survive. Is and I, I see right now the solution in Lebanon, and that's why I mentioned the that Right now, is invest in agriculture and make sure the peasants are working. Second, start at least people start working on a small, small uh, shops. The diaspora can help in their area. I have a friend
3: who is looking for funding between ten to twenty thousand dollars
1: for little shops for families to start doing this. We don't do this because if we grow that from the from the from the grassroots, in my book, the diaspora will have a role in helping in helping Lebanon. And at the same time, this fact will help the economy in Lebanon to depend on itself and really don't have to worry about, uh, about the imports, which is you mentioned that the imports are four times the export of Lebanon.
4: And that is that is a deadly factor. That is a deadly factor to any economy in the world,
1: you know. Uh, so, my my conclusion is there are factors in order to get out of it. Now, on the international side, is this country is the reason for every economic problem in the Arab in the Arab world, including Lebanon, because we, the United States of America, are interested only in the security of Israel. The security of Israel is our number one objective, not the security of Lebanon, not the, the prosperity of the Lebanese people. It is the security of Israel. If the security of Israel is guaranteed, and Lebanon will come tomorrow and say, I would sign a treaty with Israel, we will have an economic solution immediately. Let me just put this in a larger context, because we're not here to talk about Israel, although coming from you, everything is fair game, as I mentioned. But, you know, a parallel to this, there is also a crisis in the Palestinian territories. Uh, in 1994, many of us thought we'd go and invest. Two billion dollars went into the country from expats. And then the Israelis decided to build settlements well, so, yeah. that added about 300,000 Israelis in the West Bank, making a Palestinian state an impossibility. And there goes investment there goes uh, any hopes for a future. So the reason why I kind of emphasize what you were saying is to go back to the same point that actually I was very happy to hear Osama and the ambassador, because their collective experience is a chapter in Arab-American life in this respect. That uh, Osama mentioned Jibran and Mikhail Naimi. These are Hawthorne and Emerson uh, and Edgar Allan Poe wrote into one each one of them. Yeah? they came to this country with the idea of reforms, reforming Syria into, you know, a, 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 a transparently, democratically governed on, state. Democracy. All of these dreams have been in suspension since World War One. We can talk about politics, yes. Circling back to what the uh, our colleagues said. What is our responsibilities? You heard a lot about corruption. You have Lebanese students here. They are the future. Where do we find a way to hold people accountable in a tangible manner? Where and how do we reach a point where, instead of spewing out solutions, recognize the problem and put the state ahead of sectarian affiliations as someone suggested, no, there is a question there. Uh, there's a kind of loaded question that I have, but it's based on a lot of the things that you guys have all over the world, including what you just said. Um, I sometimes wonder, just out of nowhere, about all the issues in the world, including this one that recently was emphasized so much. Uh, it aligns with, I'm past it aligns with the same thing the exact same thing going on,
3: what you can't even argue with is worse. But the thing is,
1: I keep thinking to myself, thoughts and prayers are not going to do anything. And like you said, brainstorming is helpful, but to an extent, you need to stop and just do something. I want to ask you guys, you could say yes or no, and that's it, or you can elaborate if you want. But do you think that we will even see in our lifetime, any sort of even noticeable change? In, in this, and can we be, as the future generation, a part of it? Because we are the future and
3: everything,
1: quote, unquote. But like, are we, though? You know How I mean? old are you? twenty <laughs> OK. Let I mean, me add yeah, I'm 67. 67. <laughs> Sam, let me add just a small proviso that uh, you can have the last word, and then we can break for uh, good. Good. I want to tell you something. I'm 67. You're 21, right?
4: Mark my word. My name is Osama Ali Siblani. Before I pass away, and while you're still young, we're going to see a different world. I believe in our people. People never said, they never believed that what happened in Lebanon in 2006 would have ever happened. And that's everything that's happening since then points out to the fact that we were able to stand up on our feet, on our own, to defend our integrity and our homeland. You will see the progress coming. I see it. I am not pessimistic. I am optimistic. I believe in our people because they have done something that everyone said. It cannot be done. This is something very small. We will overcome it. It's just going to take time, patience, and sometimes we have to bite on our own. But it will happen. And I promise you, it will be in
1: your time and my time. Ambassador, does that solution have to come from abroad, or can there be a a collaboration? Listen, listen, Dr. Uh,
3: (laughs) One, one, uh, you want a solution, it's so easy. The moment you destroy the system, the sectarian political system in Lebanon, in a click of a second, Amazing. everything will happen. But as I mentioned before, is this possible in a sectarian divisional regime in Lebanon? No. That's why I don't see. It doesn't mean that I don't want. I want hope. I need hope. But I don't see it. Listen. Listen something else that can be added to all this. If you are in the United States, I would never say that, oh, I am a a Muslim American, I want to be living in uh, happiness with you, my fellow Christian American. You never see this here. In Lebanon, it is this case. In Lebanon, it's the case of belonging. In Lebanon, we belong to our religion first, to our political parties second, to our families, to our, to our, and by the end, we are Lebanese. Not by, not the first step, the last step. And this is the real problem. If you could just turn it on the other side. Okay, I everyone, I please help me thank our speakers. <clears throat> we can continue the conversation
1: outside with